Welcome back, my friends, to the Council on Recovery podcast. I'm Howard Lester. In today's episode one, the extraordinary story of a father's incredible efforts to save his daughter's life during her 15-year odyssey with drug addiction and mental health disorders. At times, he thought he'd lost her, but he also realized that desperately trying to save his daughter might just kill him. With other family tragedies swirling around him at the same time, he somehow found the solutions for staying alive and helping his daughter survive. One man's quest for the answers that parents all over are searching for. We'll begin after this. The Council on Recovery podcast explores the diseases of alcoholism, drug abuse, other addictions, and co-occurring mental health disorders by looking at prevention, education, treatment, and long-term recovery. We cover every point of view by talking with doctors, educators, researchers, therapists, judges, policymakers, law enforcement, rehab and mental health professionals, the media, and most importantly, people in recovery. Subscribe today at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit us online at councilonrecovery.org. My guest on this premiere episode of the Council on Recovery podcast is my good friend Bob C. I'm using the initial of Bob's last name to both respect and protect his privacy and the privacy of the people he speaks about. While you may not know Bob's last name, after you've heard his amazing story, you'll certainly know his heart. Welcome to the show, Bob. Pleasure to be here, Howard. So why don't we start with a little bit of a backstory. Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in uh, south of Boston and. Nantasket Beach. What happened to the uh, accent? Where did that go? Did that leave you somewhere along the way? Uh, probably after I uh, left uh, undergraduate and went to uh, Colorado and then in Texas since uh, 1977. So the Boston accent has been yeah, it's kind of Texased uh, out of you, huh? Yeah, but if I get on the phone and talk to family members, I can still switch into <laughs> parking the car and <laughs> have it. Yeah, I get that. When you were growing up uh, in Boston, what kind of exposure to or knowledge of uh, addiction or mental illness did you personally have? And uh, how did you see it being handled around you? It was very limited in exposure. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I had friends and some relatives that, you know, on uh, occasion, you know, you could tell that they drank too much. Mm hmm. Uh, but I never saw the the outcomes or the tragedy of addiction in any kind of personal way. Mm -hmm. What was your perception of, of drug use and addiction uh, when you went off to college? I saw it all around me. Uh -huh. um, I saw a lot of use and I saw a lot of people that uh, ended up, you know, flunking out after their first semester freshman year. Um but it didn't, I was pretty focused on my education and, you know, of course I went to parties and, you know, uh, imbibed and all that, but, uh, never experimented with serious drugs or hard drugs of any sort. And just, I, I was afraid of it because I, I, th I thought, how are you going to take a pill that you have no idea of what's in it? Hmm. Um, so uh, it, there was just some in-based fear in me that said, this is crazy, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can drink a beer or have a glass of wine. I know what's in it, and I know the effects that it'll have on me. And uh, after a while, mm -hmm. you know, that's enough of that, and it's time to go to bed and get up and do something the next day. Mm. Was there any, uh, in previous generations of your family, do you know of any use of alcohol or drugs? Um, I have a, an uncle 
that uh, was an alcoholic, mm-hmm. and uh, he recovered mm. and uh, lived a full and complete life. You know, some of my cousins have had children that have serious addiction issues and uh, one that is uh, no longer with us. Sorry to hear that. Yeah. So you graduated college. What was your degree in? Uh, Geology and chemistry. And then I went off to Colorado to go to Colorado School of Mines and get a master's degree out there and then off into the oil business. I retired seven years ago. I enjoyed it every day. There were difficult times, and and but I, I thoroughly enjoyed the technology and science that I was involved with and was successful and got to uh, experience it and work with some incredible humans, and uh, uh, many of them remain uh, close personal friends today. And when did you first get married? I got married in 78. And when did the kids come along? Uh, kids came along in the middle and late 80s, 86 and 89. My son was uh, born first uh, and my daughter later. So she's about 30, 30 at this point? Yeah, she just turned 30. My kids are similar in age to yours. And what kind of concerns did you, you have when, as your kids were, were growing up? Well, they, there's always a concern that they are, first of all, physically uh, healthy and then mentally and emotionally secure and healthy. And in the early ages, uh, they were both uh, very fortunate, you know, that they were, um, you know, healthy and well-adjusted. Mm-hmm. Looking back at their childhood, did you have any cues along the way about what lay ahead uh, for, for either of them? Oh, my son somewhat, because he was kind of rambunctious, let's say, and uh, uh, he was born with a congenital hearing defect, Um, so he was wearing hearing aids at four months old, and so he was always perceived as different, Mm -hmm. Uh, and so he he had some early issues as far as being picked on and all that kind of stuff, but uh, uh, for the most part, he he dealt with it okay, and uh, we had to get him some psychological counseling. Mm-hmm. He made it through school and, you know, was very intelligent and hardworking. My son's had his issues, and he's uh, walked a very different path than most, And uh, but he's doing it his way. Mm, that's great. So can we use your, your daughter's name? Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yes. When did you first notice that your daughter, uh, Christina, was, was experiencing difficulties? Her difficulties appeared, I think, with the onset of adolescence. Uh, before that, you know, she was this delightful and extremely intelligent, well-adjusted kid, plenty of friends. And then, you know, by the time she was about 12 years old, um, she became much more introverted, depressed, uh, to the point where uh, we got help for her and then uh, self-harm, cutting, uh, lots of serious psychological issues uh, developed. And so I, you know, at the time, you know, it was, it was impossible to understand and as every parent would be uh, despondent mm-hmm. over their child suicide attempts and, mm. and issues. Uh, so, you know, we got her into, uh, uh, into psychiatrists and psychologists and had all kinds of medication trials and, and trying to get her healthy and, uh, you know, multiple stays in psychiatric institutions. Mm. Mm. So oftentimes 
in marriages where there is a child that needs that kind of help. There are differences of opinions on the course of action. How aligned were you and your wife at the time about what Christina needed? I think while it was purely psychological issues, I think we were completely aligned Mm -hmm. uh, in that there was a definite need for significant help and anything that we could do, uh, we had to get there. It wasn't until um, substance abuse became part of the problem that our opinions diverged. Hmm. In what way? I think that her mom had a more difficult time accepting that uh, substance abuse is a disease and and that at that time she thought that she could have more control over it than I think we, anyone would realize now that mm-hmm. you can. Mm-hmm. So the, the addiction or the, the drug use followed the... The mental. initial psych, psychiatric diagnoses. Yes. And which was? Uh, well, you know, depression, yeah. uh, you know, cutting, yeah. you know, and then later uh, borderline personality disorder. Yeah. Of course, those are all co-occurring mental illnesses. Did you find that to be the case for Christina? Well, I think I think with Christina, there was no doubt that the the mental health issue was the grounding issue, and it's you know chicken or the egg, whether it's uh, the uh, bringing in of psychiatric medications that starting mm-hmm. having um, a response with quote unquote pills helping, and then going to middle school and junior high and high school, and then having a wide availability of all kinds of other substances that then uh, the the habit became significant and serious. Mm. So the environment was really influencing her recovery at the time or lack thereof. Lack thereof, right, yeah. How did you respond to that? What were, what were your thoughts at the time when you saw that going on around her? Initially, it was like, well, <laughs> you know, you need to be following your doctor's advice and you need to stay healthy and go to counseling and do all the things that you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then when I think it was her 15th birthday party that uh, the kind of the wraps came off, so to speak, when, when the kids went out to a movie in the afternoon and then we came home, the police were already there because there were uh, people that uh, were, you know, smoking dope in our front yard and neighbors called the police and all that. And so uh, we proceeded to have the party after the police left and, and they came back and asked to search the house and found nothing. And then later we found out that all the stash was in a uh, air register behind a filter. So, and so meantime, uh, you know, our uh, psychologist who was dealing with mm-hmm. Christina, we had talked about um, having this birthday party. And yeah. My wife and I were both uh, uh, very concerned about it. And the psychologist is telling him, when everybody gets there, you two just pour a glass of wine and relax. And, uh, you know, we looked at each other and said, no way. And it was a good thing we didn't because, you know, we had police in the house and it wouldn't look good if uh, we had open bottles of alcohol around with a bunch of 15-year-olds. Wow. So, yeah, that was, uh, that was kind of the, the start of the rude awakening that this was something that was out of control and certainly beyond our understanding. Hmm. We were worried about uh, illicit drug use, 
And I think the psychiatrist and psychologist were more, you're just making this up in your minds and you're, you're paranoid. So that's the way I remember it is that they were viewing us as being overly concerned, you know, like helicopter type parents, even though that term wasn't around then. Uh, but when, you know, your child has a serious mental health issue and has tried to harm themselves in many ways, uh, you know, one, uh, a good parent uh, finds it hard not to uh, be overly observant and concerned. So even in the midst of the knowledge of this going on with their patients, they suggested to you that don't worry about it. Uh, Everything will be okay. They didn't validate that for you in any way? or I, th- I think it was more that, that they were in denial about uh-huh. it. Yeah. You yeah. know, that they didn't understand the, you know, we, because any any person who's actively using can go to very good extremes to uh, hide that use. So Christina being uh, extremely intelligent uh, and very persuasive, uh, would uh, convince any and all that we were the problem and not her. So that same family uh, dynamic, dynamic uh, showed up in, in that way. Right. Uh, so what are some of the things that you did initially to try and to try and help her? You, you mentioned the psychologist and psychiatrist. What were some of the other things that you did? Well, then it would be uh, taking particular care in any of our social activities mm-hmm. um, and, you know, uh, trying to be involved in whatever she was doing you know i mean she was you know an all a student you know uh you know involved in all kinds of uil activities and all that so uh she was uh at when she was in school she was high functioning high functioning my goodness did you try any of the uh, the typical responses like grounding and taking away the car. Well, yeah. And uh, this was, I'm still talking about before driver's license here. So yeah, then, uh, she got older, uh, and the, the, uh, abuse got more significant. Uh, and we found out that she was actually using, you know, hard drugs that, uh, that's when we were uh, encouraged to get uh, addiction counseling as mm. well. What was what was she telling you at the time? All this was going on. Oh, it's just all in your mind, Dad, and you know, you're 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 crazy, you know, and uh, that that's not me, and you know, just um, the old adage: if their lips are moving. <laughs> <laughs> So her response was, it's your problem, Dad, yeah, not, not mine. mine. Right. Yeah, I've heard that one. So when did she first go into an organized treatment? Uh, she was about 15 and a half, I would say. Mm-hmm. And that's when, you know, the uh, the famous occurrence of her being grounded and, you know, letting the dog out to go use the uh, mm-hmm. the backyard, and then all of a sudden she jumped out and had already arranged for one of her friends to uh, pick her up. So uh, that's when I, uh, you know, they went, they didn't realize that we lived in a cul-de-sac, so <laughs> when they went down to turn around the corner, I was standing out in the street and, and stopped them, and they tried to leave, and I jumped on the hood of the car, grabbing the windshield wipers, and made them stop, and then before long, you know, the neighbors had called the police because uh, they were, uh, you know, aware of what was going on, mm-hmm. and and shortly thereafter, uh, 
we were introduced to some friends that uh, uh, were in uh, addiction recovery and an alternative peer group, and mm-hmm. that's where we went. That's amazing that you had to go through that. Uh, what What were you feeling at the time when you jumped on that hood? Uh, this is crazy. I can't understand why she's doing this, and I'm going to die unless I do something different. For her or for you? For for myself, first of all. And, I, you know, at that point, I wasn't still willing to let her go because this is your 15-year-old daughter, and, you know, legally you're responsible for whatever they do. So um, it was a very difficult time. Mm-hmm. Very difficult. I see. Now, when... When she went into uh, treatment uh, initially, what what type of program was it? It was an alternative peer group uh-huh. where um, you would come in for an assessment, and uh, at that point, uh, she went into uh, detox and and then you know to inpatient treatment, mm-hmm. and then came back to the uh, you know APG. Um, if for a while did okay mm-hmm. you know uh in other words had another peer group with friends uh, to deal with uh but they had a lot of uh parent support groups and all that kind of stuff and so that's what i tended to uh get involved with and uh it wasn't an easy process for me to to learn about addiction and understand it and understand how powerless and helpless i was in the situation mm. That support by other parents who are going through it is is so crucial to being able to help themselves first so they can be of help to the kids. Right. With all the availability of residential-type programs, maybe not so many for, for adolescents, but with that sort of thing at the time, why did you select an alternative peer group? as opposed to inpatient or residential treatment? Well, I think that was just part of the evaluation. And so she did go to inpatient and uh, um, outpatient treatment at this APG because okay. they had they had clinical services available oh, as well. Oh, they did. Okay. Yes. So she was actually in a residential uh, yeah. type of arrangement. What, looking back, Bob, what, what were your expectations when she first went into that? I mean, what did you think? Yeah, well, I... As a you know, a naive parent, uh, obviously figured, well, this would be good in a couple of months, and she can come home and and uh, you know start acting like a normal teenager again. Yeah, good as new, huh? Yeah, that would be anyone's expectation. That's totally ignorant of addiction. How long was she in that environment? Uh, she was in there through uh, graduating from high school, so she was in, involved with it for uh, four years. Wow. And so what happened when she got out of that program? Uh, she went off to Austin to uh, college and uh, for a while did well. You know, grades were always great, but you could tell that uh, slowly she was uh, falling off the wagon. So whatever she gained during the four years had not followed her to Austin? Or- no, and, and she wasn't, I don't believe she was sober the entire time she was in the APG either. I see. Why, looking back again, why do, uh, why do you think that the, the, that, that approach didn't work for her long term? For her long term, I don't think it worked because her mental health needs weren't being, um, met as, as much as they should have been. Mm. So with her underlying diagnosis, you know, especially with borderline personality disorder, 
there's no quote unquote medicine that they can give you to help with that. It's just a long process that, you know, the medications can help with some aspects of the borderline personality, uh, but they can't, uh, you know, mitigate the entire uh, disorder. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a flip of what happened when earlier she was seeing psychiatrists and psychologists for the mental health issues who, in, in essence, dismiss the, the drug usage and addiction. So now she's in an APG that's focusing on behavior and right, recovery. And, and kind of leaving the mental health issues by the wayside. Uh, and not completely by the wayside, but they fell to uh, a far lesser extent. What kind of effect did, did all of this have on you? personally. I mean, you talked about getting involved with parent parent groups at the APG, but at the time you were you were working at the oh, time. Yeah, I was working. How how did all this affect your 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 health and your job and your marriage? What, it, what kind it, of impact? It made it very difficult, yeah, uh, because there were you know, not only the cost, but the time of, involved in it. Uh, you know, parents uh, were expected to uh, to be involved in their child's uh, you know, recovery, mm -hmm. uh, especially as adolescents. And, um, you know, we did lots of things by hosting sober parties and having kids come and, you know, spend a week at our house when they had to get out of their house and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, so there, there was a lot of activity involved in it. It took a lot of time and effort. Uh, and it, it it was very difficult to me to negotiate my my work schedule to deal with that. But fortunately, I was able to. Uh, but it w was even more difficult for me to come to accept that this was the way it was going to be. Mm. Uh, and so th that was difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, and to truly grasp the severity of the situation and that this is it. You know, this doesn't get better. Mm. It gets ameliorated. Oh, it, yeah. You know, this is this is it. This is the way it's going to be. Beyond the APG, what, what was your turning point for, for getting help and support for yourself? Uh, I think it was being involved in the APG. Uh -huh. uh, it, it took a while for, you know, a sledgehammer and a chisel to uh, uh, get through my skull and, exp and get me to understand and accept what addiction is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once once I kind of grasped that mm -hmm. and accepted it, then I wanted to know more, mm. and and so that helped me a great deal. Mm -hmm. um, and got involved with a an out, an out, a separate uh, men's group, mm -hmm. uh, and we ha would have uh, sessions, you know, that sometimes were clinically directed, mm -hmm. and other times it was just guys getting together. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I got to to uh, develop uh, strong bonds with uh, with men that uh, are still in my life today, and and uh, will for as long as we live. That's really important too. Yeah, how about twelve step work? Where you did? You oh yeah, we we you know that was one of the requirements if you mm -hmm. were going to uh, be part of the program that you had to uh, sign up for whatever your issue was. And for me, it was Al Anon. So yeah, it took a while and a couple of times to get through the steps and uh, and do that and uh, uh, you know take on sponsees, both uh, other men and at times some of the kids. Uh, many of the, the younger men that uh, were 
addicts also had Al-Anon issues because they were, you know, children of, of addicts and alcoholics as well. So uh, it was quite interesting. Yeah, and what amazes me about that, Bob, is that in the process of doing that and helping others, uh, you were saving other lives out there. I'm, I'm curious, though, what, how did you, how, how did, as you worked your program of recovery, how did that change the way you related to the act of addiction that Christina was still experiencing? It gave me hope that, um, you know, that if she has the ability to get this someday, Mm-hmm. Um, and it may not be today, and it's not at my direction, it's at hers, uh, and that I needed to be at a place where I would be accountable to myself mm-hmm. uh, and be accountable to how I interacted with her. Mm. So there actually came a point where when she was in college uh, in Austin that uh, it became evident that she was using again. Mm-hmm. And I was paying for her education, and I said, you know, no more. You want to stay in school, you can go out and take school loans, and all support is uh, over, and actually went through the legal process to emancipate her so she could go file file Mm. for um, financial aid. My goodness. So that was your response to what was going on for her? Yeah, because I, I, I felt like I... I knew what was going on Mm -hmm. and that I was not going to be financially responsible for, quote, unquote, pushing the plunger on her arm. Mm. So that's as direct direct result of what you learned in your own recovery. Yeah, I would never have had the understanding nor strength to hold through to something like that. I can imagine how difficult that was. So she... Was it at uh, UT Austin? Uh, St. Edward. uh, St. Edward's in Austin. Did she continue on there, or what were the next number of years like for her? Uh, she continued on and uh, uh, graduated, mm-hmm. and then I think it was, I think it took her one extra semester to graduate, mm. uh, and because she she wanted to add a different part to her major, because mm-hmm. uh, her you know her grades were incredibly good, you know. Even in the midst of all the all all of the addiction and using using and all that, so she yeah, she, I think she graduated with like a three eight out of four, not out of five. Yeah, that's amazing. That that must have made it additionally difficult for her to admit she had a problem because look how good she's doing in school. I, at that point, I think I accepted that there are uh, high fun- functioning addicts, uh, and that you know even though she could do well at some things, didn't mean she could do well at life and that became evident because i think a month after she graduated her boyfriend od'd uh dead in her bed in her apartment oh my gosh and that was a a very difficult time yeah how did how did she react to all of that at the time uh self-harm uh she she tried to uh uh you know end it at that point and (laughs) i kind of felt like I was going back to the beginning on this. I felt like I was on the hood of the car again um, because I uh, arranged uh, uh, two unsuccessful interventions. Uh, uh, actually, you know, <laughs> broke into her apartment uh, uh, through a window to uh, help the police with the well check. My goodness. You said two unsuccessful interventions. How far did you get with those? 
uh, got her to appear, and then she just said no. Both times. Right. And then finally, about three or four months after that, she agreed to uh, go into detox. And then from there, she went to Florida uh, to a, 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 a rehab for uh, about a year. So what happened when she got out of that, that rehab? Uh, she came back and uh, did a little work and then decided she wanted to go back to grad school. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, applied for that and was accepted and mm. uh, got loans and, and uh, finally uh, uh, graduated. That's amazing. A year and a half ago. Yeah, a year and a half ago. I, I know that uh, that somewhere along the way she had a crisis that involved being in the hospital. Oh, yeah. Then, well, just because she went for a year in rehab, she she came back and, and uh, uh, slipped up again. And, and that was... Uh, back in October of 17, mm-hmm. where she, you know, uh, ended up uh, in the hospital. Uh, that was uh, actually, it was two days after my wife passed away in hospice. And Christina hadn't showed up for any of that process. Uh, so um, I went over and knocked on her door and uh, she was in there with her current boyfriend and non-responsive, basically. So I dialed 911 and uh, followed her to the hospital where she uh, remained there for five weeks in ICU and had to go to a physical rehab to learn how to walk again. My goodness. That's really, really tragic the way that all worked out. You you lost your wife in the midst of, of all, all, all that. Right. So, yeah, I was from... One neuro ICU with my wife, uh, you know, uh, passing away after brain cancer surgery to another ICU with my daughter who was uh, pretty much non-responsive in a coma. Mm. How did you keep your sanity during all that? Uh, I would say I probably didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But I just got up and did the next indicated thing. Mm -hmm. So just do the next thing or just do the next thing and and wait for uh, instruction wow so was christina's hospitalization and what she went through during that period being in the coma and, and uh, i think you'd mentioned she was in a, a coma for a period yes, of time six, six days six days um would you so do you consider that her turning point or her moment of clarity that experience i don't i think maybe and I'd really have to ask her this, right? Uh, but I think it might have been more that you know she had some significant cognitive deficits mm-hmm. um, after her overdose, mm-hmm. and it took a long time for her to recover. And then when she had to spend about ten days in a physical rehab, learning to walk again, uh, and slowly regaining her mental acuity. I think that may have uh, have been what flipped a switch for her that said this is can't continue because you know before that she had been at the park and had got out of there Mm -hmm. and and then went back there and then you know uh, finally uh, uh, went to Meniger and that was the turn that was the turning point yeah I think for her for her so during this time. So much of your energy and attention looks like it was focused on on Christina. How did you find the time and and emotional fortitude to deal with 
what was happening? Well, my children's mother is still alive. Okay, right, so, right. but then I, w- I was married after we divorced, and and Linda, who passed away from ovarian cancer, uh, in two thousand thirteen, mm-hmm. and that was uh, just after or just just before uh, Christina uh, had her boyfriend overdose in her apartment. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, Linda was around for that, and Catherine was around for Christina, uh, you know, kind of acting out. But uh, obviously the crisis came after she passed away from brain cancer. So, yeah, I mean, obviously my uh, uh, my grieving process was on hold during that period. Uh-huh. I was curious how you got along during that period of time. It's an extraordinary set of events to occur while you're trying to deal with your daughter's well then after my problem. my daughter uh I'll get out uh then and before she went to Menninger um then I uh my, my father was uh passing away from mesothelioma so I deposited Christine at the park and went and spent a month and a half with him and uh, held his hand as he passed away so Goodness. Well, I remember, I remember being with you over the years as you've gone through a lot of these things. And uh, it's extraordinary to me how, how you got through it with such um, grace and dignity and, and uh, hope. I mean, though, whenever we talked about it, right. I, I sensed the sadness and the grief and the other things involved. But it occurred to me that you, you never cease to be hopeful. Well, every day, every breath is another chance. Yeah. Is that something innate or something that you learned along the way? Mm, I think p- part of it is innate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as my family used to say growing up that I was uh, very stubborn. You know, if I decided to pursue something, I was going to do it until um, I either accomplished it or accepted that it was beyond my capabilities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, then... Um, then all the work I did on myself during the, this process uh, uh, made me realize that you know every day is a is a blessing and a gift, and uh, that wh- whomever your higher power is, um, that is where your strength lies. Mm. That's a great sentiment. So where is Christine at today? What is what is the the, the outcome up to this moment uh, the outcome up to this moment is is that she uh, uh, passed her her uh, clinical exams and uh, she's a li- licensed professional counselor dash I because she just got her master's and uh, she's currently working in a, a medical facility here in Houston isn't that amazing after everything she's gone through she'll be able to channel that experience into helping others right and uh she's already confided in me <laughs> that uh that uh some of her uh her work with uh adolescents uh has been extremely challenging when uh she has to deal with uh, uh parents that come in and are um kind of clueless <laughs> so in a way she's actually got a opportunity to not live over but be able to go through vicariously what you are going through with the other parents that she deals with. Right. So a lot of families, especially now with the opioid epidemic, are dealing with their children, a child, uh, maybe even more than one that 
have addiction issues or there's alcoholism or there are co-occurring mental health disorders. What would you like to tell people that have experienced or are yet to experience what, what you have? I would like to tell them to get education early and often. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, let's be clear, yeah. addiction is a mental health issue. Yeah. Clearly, I'm not a medical profession, but it is a brain issue. And if other co-occurring mental health issues are present, to coordinate services, um, because my experience showed me that multiple prescription trials of many medications, some of which are are addictive, you mm -hmm. know, from Adderall to benzos for mental health conditions, are widely prescribed uh, with no coordination with an addictions physician or therapist. And so caregivers uh, need to insist that there is a complete care of this individual uh, with high-quality medical care from psychiatrists and psychologists that can do everything from genetic testing to better indicate what types of medicines might work for this individual, mm -hmm. and as well as uh, work on keeping addictive medications uh, coordinated and to use their use to the minimum. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's very similar for uh, trauma mm -hmm. uh, uh, treatment, whether we're dealing with soldiers coming back uh, from war and multiple uh, surgeries and opioid for pain relief. Uh, many of these men uh, who I have experience with go through multiple trials of addiction and, and, it's, and then add the trauma to it and it becomes very difficult. So I guess my my recommendation would be is don't just treat one thing. Uh, do your best to understand what everything is involved and put together a team that can help the entire system be accountable. Was that something that you had to come up with on your own or, or that you just intu intuitively knew needed to happen? Or were you guided to that approach by something that was already being done? I got to that approach by having the opposite happen several times. In other words, um, you know, Christina would come out of, you know, high quality mental health treatment, you know, being either residential or outpatient, working with great psychiatrists and psychologists and get on a regimen that was, you know, working. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, she'd go off and take a job and, and the only psychiatrist on the insurance would be X. And that would be just a, you know, someone who would go prescriptions every six weeks. You see them for 10 minutes mm. and they start trying uh, addictive medicines again. And then the addict in, in her would just want to not say anything and see that happening again and again and again. Mm. And even with uh, employing uh, very high-quality case management services. Uh, she would do the best she could to uh, outrun any of their uh, drug testing regimes. My goodness. So she's trying to stay clean while she's in an environment that is kind of taking her the other way. Right. 
it must be really tough to watch. Yeah, it becomes very difficult to watch. And so then you just have to back up and just say, hey, when and if this falls apart, if you want to try something different, I'll be here. Get that. That's a nice way to end. But before we do, you mentioned earlier about the veterans and about the men coming back with PTSD. I know you're involved with, with some of those people. Uh, would you mind sharing with us what you're, you're doing with them? Well, I work with a group. Of, uh, it's called Combat Marine Outdoors. I'm a volunteer, uh, and I just work with uh, taking veterans uh, hunting. And a lot of these men come and they are uh, difficult mobility issues. Some of them are actually still active, but they have uh, all gotten medals with valor in combat and all have had multiple wounds. And it's amazing to get them out uh, using firearms for um, mm. a good purpose. And, uh, and on a humorous note, for many of them, they've never been hunters. And this is the first time they've actually uh, pointed a rifle at something with four legs. <laughs> um, the healing that some of them get, you know, at two in the morning sitting around uh, a campfire and being able to share their experiences and what they have gone through and realize that people out there care. I'm most struck by, you know, me being not a military veteran. Uh, when I tell them that I thank them for their service and I'm humbled by what they have gone through, they dismiss it universally. It's dismissed, and they just say thank you because they're just glad someone cares. Well, Bob C., you are an amazing man, and you're also a really good friend. Thank you very much for the opportunity to be here and sit with you. I'd like to have you back sometime in the future. I'd enjoy it. Thanks again. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by the Council on Recovery, one of the nation's oldest and largest nonprofit providers of prevention, education, treatment, and recovery services for individuals and families to by alcoholism, drug abuse, other addictions, and co-occurring mental health disorders. The Council is also home to the Center for Recovering Families, which provides a full spectrum of outpatient treatment programs, counseling, and other services for adults, adolescents, and children. Visit councilonrecovery.org.